Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Friday at 7 o'clock Eastern time. A little early for us, but uh, welcome to Tone Talk with Mark and Bill. Uh We've got an awesome guest tonight. Um, Bo Hill is with us. Bo is a legendary producer and a musician. Uh, he's produced Rat, Winger, Warren, Stevie Nicks, Kicks, Alice Cooper. I can keep going. Um, so, Gary Moore. Many more. And many more. Many more Fiona. Uh, so yeah, welcome to the show, Bo. I really appreciate you coming. <clears throat> Thank you for having me. Yep, Dave. How are you? I'm doing good. Hanging in there. Yeah. In the I'm. I'm here. I'm at work. You know. I'm at work. Yes. Cool. Uh, I want to say hi to everybody um, and make sure you check out Sweetwater, who uh, is an affiliate for the show, and. Uh, check out sweetwater.com. Actually, go to our affiliate link actually down uh, below the video and you'll be able to click on there and we get a little kickback for the show. Um, and also check out Three Chord Spirits from Neil Giraldo. Um, he sent us some great stuff. So if anybody wants to check that out. So anyway, Bo, how have you been? Thanks for uh, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Yeah, It's been a crazy ride for this this year, huh? Yeah, it has. It has been. Can't, can't <laughs> yeah. deny it. What's that? I said I can't deny it. Yeah, crazy ride. But um, have during all of this time, have you been actually uh, working with with and producing and and doing work actually? Yes. Um, my my job has has morphed a bit. Uh, I'm primarily mixing and mastering right now, hmm. uh, and so as has been for the last several years, bands from around the world that I've never even met, they send me files and, and I mix it and master it for them. And, uh, in the, uh, comfort and safety of my own studio here at the house. How that's great. Is that? And, uh, the name of the business is Bow Hill Productions. Uh, yeah. Bow Hill Productions. That's awesome. LLC. LLC. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, like I mentioned, I mean, you've worked with so many legendary artists and done so many great albums. We're definitely going to get into a lot of that. Um, uh, we were, I know we were catching up earlier before, and uh, you live in Texas uh, in Austin, so you guys had a real difficult time with the freeze over there and, and everything. So I know that you've been dealing with that. Uh, and I just and got today it was 90. Today it was 90. Freeze is over. <laughs> what do you That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. But um, so let's dive right in. So I, I, I've heard a bunch of interviews with you, uh, most notably uh, the In the Bloom interview, uh, which actually isn't a video. It's just audio that you can listen to on YouTube. And then there's also one recently you did with Eddie Trunk. Um, and they go into a lot of background of your your history and uh with your your original band that you were signed and uh, i think it was called airborne yeah and um but then you ended up after a while being a musician you ended up going into producing um i'm curious how did that happen how did you make the switch from being a musician to going into producing i know you were recommended to do rat at some point but i'm curious how mm -hmm. that well uh, I always really loved being in the studio, uh, whether it was 
you know, with my band or whatever. And I actually produced loosely, if you will, the demos that got Airborne signed in the first place. Because I was working as a uh, uh, as an engineer at a very small uh, jingle studio in Denver, Colorado, while I was going to college. And they ran the business sort of nine to five. And then after five, the studio kind of just sat empty. And so I went to the owner and I said, listen, uh, I can probably make myself a lot better if you let me come in and record my band after hours. And, and it'll be more experience for me. I'll get faster. I'll bring in more business for you, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, Knockwood, he said, okay, that sounds all right. And so we would sit in there and we would make some of the worst sounding records ever <laughs> from, uh, you know, seven o'clock until two or three or four in the morning. And, but it was the way that I learned. And so I would read all the recording magazines, you know, and, and, and try to emulate all of the techniques and the things that other producers were doing. You know, people, I was listening to their records, like Roy Baker, for example, you know, and, and he got technical with, you know, his alignment of the tape machine and how he set his bias and all that kind of stuff. And I went, wow, that, if it's good enough for him, it's got to be good enough for me. And so, you know, we would go in and try just all sorts of stupid, zany stuff. And as, as I said, it, it all started out sounding pretty horrific in the beginning. But with all of those failed attempts, you know, I kind of started to squeeze in just a little bit. And I was like, okay, now, I, okay, I think I, I think I got this piece a little better. Now let's go work on this piece. But that's how, that's how we got signed. And were, did you have a lot of tools to work with at that studio? Like, was it? A yeah, uh, they had a beautiful uh, a Neve um, 8178, I want to say, and they had a Studer A800. They had a beautiful um, Bosendorfer piano, and you know, reasonable selection of microphones and thing, and you know, and things like that. But that's where, where I learned, you know, was actually physically cutting tape. And when you work as a jingle engineer, the client doesn't really give a shit about, you know, your perfection. They want to get in and get out. And the one thing that that really taught me was how to, how to really make those decisions. What's an important decision? What's not an important decision? What's... Um, artistically cool and what's completely unnecessary with respect to what the client wants. And, and it got me really fast at making decisions, whether it was a good decision or not, you know, I didn't really know until the end of the day, but the whole hand wringing part of, Oh my God, what mic shall I use? And oh, what pattern shall I put it on? And what, blah, 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 none of that. So you just, I didn't have the luxury of that. However, when I recorded my band, you know, then it was just like the doors wide open. So we tried everything you could. I mean, we did stupid shit like we'd like hang a mic from a boom and swing it back and forth and then play your guitar track. And I yeah. mean, just, just think of all the ridiculous stuff that you could do because that's what we were doing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. 
Well, that's a great learning thing. The best thing ever anyone can do that doesn't really know a lot yet is to experiment and 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 figure it out. You know, hands on. Well, d- don't forget, back in those days, you know, there weren't any recording schools. Yeah, there weren't. I mean, it was you know, I would read a magazine article, or I would, you know talk to one of the other engineers at the studio and they say, Hey man, guess what? I tried so-and-so and so-and-so and it really sounded great. Okay. I'll try that. And so it really was flying by the seat of your pants and it was, it was okay. This sucks. All right, let's unsuck it somehow. <laughs> and that, That's kind of how we did it's it. It's always hard to unsuck it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's called bulky race and start over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. So then after that, then you got more interested in doing more actual work and producing? Well, yeah. Um, I hadn't really made at that at that time. Uh, we made the record. Uh, Keith Olson, who is my mentor, and and he was my only contact of anybody in the record business. He's the guy I sent I sent the demos to. And he took him into Irving Azoff, who was his manager at the time of Eagles fame. And, and Irving said, who is this guy? And he, and he said it was, you know, a friend of his, an acquaintance of his. And there was no band of Airborne. It was just me and some of my friends, two of which wound up being in the band. But they, it was just my friends and, and uh, you know, and guys like, Kip Winger and his brothers and stuff like just anybody that I could drag into the studio and say, hey. and Irving said, uh, I really like this stuff. Um, bring him out here and I'll set up some appointments for him. And so I flew out to, to LA and stayed at Keith's house. Uh, at which time I met Keith's maid who was a lady named Stevie Nicks. And wait, really? Yeah. yeah. I, remember, I remember hearing that. She was, she was working at the main, right? Know that. Yeah. yeah. Stevie and Lindsay were, I mean, they would do odd jobs and she would come down and, and clean his, his, his house and in, mm-hmm. um, in exchange for some studio time. But this was before well, I was sleeping. Back. I was sleeping on Keith's couch and all of a sudden, you know, this, this very attractive ladies in there cleaning up, you know, and Stevie wasn't Stevie at that point. She was almost Stevie. If you get what yeah. I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, very nice. And, uh, so that's, that's how we met there. And then Irving set up six meetings in one day with the presidents of six labels, you know, all the, the big ones at the time. Right. And, and Keith uh, went with me. And so I don't know what these guys thought I was because Keith came, walked in the door. He knew all these people. And so he planned the cassette and, and I'm standing kind of in the door jam. And, uh, and, and everybody goes, wow, this is really great. Um, you know, uh, who's the band? When can we meet him? And then Keith would turn around and go, well, he's standing right there. <laughs> so, Without, without this sounding like too much of a fishing story, because it's absolutely true, um, we had 
an offer from every label. So we had six offers in one day. Amazing. And I, I mean, which is, you know, unheard now when I think of. about it, looking back, I was just like, this is impossible. This, there's no way that this is going to happen, but we did. And then Irving and Bob Buziak. Oh, his internet's going a little bit. They decided that uh, Columbia was going to be the one, so we did it. That's cool. All right. Uh, yeah, your your uh, your your internet's lagging a little bit. Oh, it is just a little bit, but it's okay. We'll get. Well, I reset it for you today, like I promised. I appreciate <laughs> it. It only lasted for about five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's, That's okay. Right. We had Bob Rock on the show, and nothing could be worse than what 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 we got from him. <laughs> yeah, Bob was in his car on his phone oh. <laughs> outside on his, of his house. Yeah, so that that was funny. Um, let me see. I want to get to uh, so so you worked with Steve. I know you worked with Stevie Nicks on the Wild Heart album, right? Ultimately, right? <clears throat> well. Uh, that's a that's a, a yes and a yes. Where I um, I was in Texas. Um, okay, I'll back up. Um, I'm in New York. Just signed with Chrysalis with a band called Shanghai. I got a call from a high school friend named Gordon Perry, who owned uh, Goodnight Dallas, which was the the uh, the sister of Goodnight LA, or actually it worked the other way around. Goodnight LA came afterwards. Mm -hmm. And he picked up the phone and called me and he said, listen, I'm going to uh, work with this band called Siren and I want you to come down and, and co-produce it with me. And I was sitting in New York waiting for the Shanghai record to come out. And so I had, you know, basically three months of nothing to do while they were setting up the record. And so I said, sure. And I went down and met uh, Siren who was primarily an incredibly talented uh, lady named Sandy Stewart. And so we started producing Sandy's band. And then it's, I mean, it's very, very weird the way all this stuff happened. Um, but Gordon's wife, Lori, wound up being one of the three background singers in Stevie's solo project. And so Stevie was just kind of, you know, she was in and out all the time. And anytime Fleetwood came through, you know, she was there. I got her to sing backgrounds on a, uh, a winger demo, believe it or not, <laughs> called Heather. And this was when, this was before winger was winger. This was, uh, it was called wingers, which was Kip and his two brothers. Huh. And so, I had them come down and we were doing some free demos cause Gordon let me use the studio when it was empty. And so Stevie cruised by one day and I, and I asked her, I said, would you mind doing some background vocals? And she said, sure. And so we did. And then we played Stevie, the Sandy Stewart record that we were working on and Stevie flipped out. She loved it. Loved Sandy's writing, loved her singing, everything. And I believe if you look on the Wild Heart record, Sandy's uh, picture is there. I mean, she's she was folded into the 
into the the girls, as they like to call them. Hmm. And and that's kind of how I wound up working on on uh, on Stevie's record, but in a in a very limited capacity. I mean, I was the engineer the day that Prince came in when we were in L.A. And he he walked in and he didn't say anything to anybody. And he just walked right over to the synthesizer. I think it was Edge of 17 or something like that. But it, he walked over to the synthesizer and gave the high sign and I hit record. And he went, and all he did was one take of whatever. I think it was Edge of 17 that had that, that bass uh, synth. And then he turned around and walked out. And it was just like, okay. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. That's it. I'm, I'm done. I know it's good. And see you later. So, yeah. One taken out. I mean, it, was yeah. Pretty, yeah, it, was, it was pretty weird, actually. But he, did, he didn't say a word, or certainly didn't say a word to me. I mean, I was just the lowly engineer on that day. Well, I've heard stories oh. already that he, he's done that. He did that at... Um, Sunset Sound, I believe. Oh, he's done that millions of times. Yeah, like he, they, oh. they, I think who was talking about it? They said that he would just hide behind the console and peek his head out every once in a while, but didn't say anything to anybody. Not a word. Strange. Yeah, strange. But great so, musician. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. And so, you know, my my uh, experiences with Stevie are are pretty like off the reservation, if you know what I'm saying. I see. And. Um, but anyway, she loved the Sandy Stewart stuff so much that she went to Doug Morris and she said, I want to sign this girl to Modern Records, which was the label that the, the Atlantic sub label that they created for Stevie when she went and did her solo stuff. And so, again, you know, we had a, we had a tie in there through Modern because Sandy got signed to Modern. And I co-wrote about, I don't know three songs. So if, if you look on that record, you'll see a um, publishing credit to Small Hope Music. That's me. But uh, Gordon and I had a little bit of a falling out. And so he made sure that I was never actually listed as a writer on those songs. So you'll see Gordon, Sandy, and Stevie. And then you'll see rather than just three publishers, you'll see four. And that was me. Ah, interesting. Interesting. So, uh, so you, you, you got signed with your band airborne, uh, and, uh, what went on with that? And then how did it trans, how did it go from there to going into working, say on the first rat record or something? Okay. Um, I forget what the guy's name was. Anyway, it was, um, I'm having a, a mental blank. The executive vice president of Columbia signed us. Mm -hmm. He was our rabbi. And then the week before the album is released, uh, we received a letter, Don Ellis, that's it, oh, that, yeah. he, that he was leaving Columbia because he, they were going to make him president of RCA UK. So a week before our label, I mean, our release, our rabbi goes. So we've got no one. Oh boy. So, so the record came and went mm -hmm. 
faster than you could possibly imagine. Right. And, and so then I moved to New York, the whole Sandy Stewart thing happened. Right. And, uh, there's a very interesting story. Um, I was doing all the rough mixes every day because Doug was in New York and he said, look, I don't know anything about these people that are, that are doing the Sandy Stewart record. So I want, I want to be left in the loop and I want to hear rough mixes every day or whenever you're doing. And so we did. And I was doing the, the production and the engineering work and sending in the, the tapes and, and, uh, and Doug was calling and he was talking to Gordon not to me. He didn't know me from anything. And Sandy, to her credit, figured out that Gordon took my name off all the rough mixes that we sent in and put his on. And Sandy picked up the phone and called Doug and said, listen, it's not really the way that you think it is. Bo's doing these, these mixes and Bo's doing most of the production. And Doug goes, who the fuck is Bo? And so at that point, we had moved the whole operation from Dallas out to California because Stevie wanted to be close. And then because Stevie was living with Jimmy Iovine, he was there. And so that's kind of how that meshed together. And, you know, and Jimmy was going, look, we can just get Shelly Yakis to mix it. It's okay. And Sandy said, no. You know, Bo did this, and so he. I want him to mix it, and so she. It really became a real controversial uh, Mongolian clusterfuck, and so (laughs) Doug got pissed off, and he said, "Okay, I'm coming out there, and I'm going to put I'm going to put an end to this." So Doug got on a plane, came to Sound City, and he walked in, and every you know, and he's talking to Stevie, and he's talking to Jimmy Iovine, and he's talking to Shelly, and all the people that are around. And I'm off in the corner, being uh, Muggins. And then Doug turns around and goes, "Who the fuck is this bow guy?" And then Sandy introduced me to him, and you know, and he was he was he was pleasant, but he was um, put out, shall we say? <laughs> and he said, he said. Okay, here's how this is going to work. Sandy wants you to mix this record, and everybody else doesn't. And I'm out here, so here's where we're going to do it. I'll give you one pass to set the mix up, and then I'm going to sit next to you, and you're going to mix the entire album in front of me right now. Oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I went, well, okay. All right, fine. Let's and do it. And that's exactly what happened. He he would leave the room, gave me one pass to set up my you know echo returns and get basic levels, and then he came and sat right next to me, like, okay, mix asshole. Oh man! So I did, and then Doug got up, walked out into the lounge where all the other people were, and he turned to them and he said. This guy's mixing the record. And he walked wow. out. So I did the record. I was back in New York in my hovel. And about three weeks after I got back, I got a call from Doug's secretary. And she said, would you please hold for Mr. Morris? And I was like, you mean Doug? She said, yeah. 
And so Doug got on the phone and he said, listen, um, I'm going to sign this band rat. If you'll produce them, you want to fly to LA with me tomorrow to see him. And I was like, uh, yes, sir. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so we, we flew to LA and the other thing that really made me love Doug about this was I figured, you know, he's going to put me in coach and he's going to sit in first class or he's going to take the Warner jet and miss and meet me somewhere. He bought two coach tickets and he sat with me in coach and, uh, and we just chatted the whole way out. I and mean, he was, it was really incredible. And so it, it wasn't at all what I thought, you know, big president of a record company was going to do. And we went to see rat at, I believe it's the Beverly theater. I'm pretty sure that's right. And it was packed like 2000 kids going completely batshit crazy. And then Doug turned around to me and he said, well, what do you think? And I was, I mean, I was broke, you know, and I, and I (laughs) wanted an opportunity and I was, uh, yes, sir. Love to. And we went backstage and pretty much hammered out the deal. I mean, not me, but Doug and uh, Marshall Burrell, who's Rat's manager. And then Doug kind of came out and he went, okay, we're good to go. That's how it started. Amazing. Man. That's yeah, that's so cool. I mean, that is the that is the most improbable collection of just weird one offs that all connected the dots somehow. Yeah. But that's you know, that's how this industry sort of works. You know, it's it's like you know someone and they know someone and this knows someone and oh wait, you know, I should get you in on this and we can move yeah. That's just the way it always works. Yeah. You know? um. So how different was uh, the material and, you know, the songs for their first album uh, versus what came out? Like, was there a lot of pre-production and, and changing of material and how involved were you in, you know, re, you know, rearranging things. I'm just curious about the process in the studio with those guys. Well, Yes, we did. Yes, we did pre-production because uh, I was kind of, I was a big pre-production freak because uh, it's a lot cheaper to do it in at Mates, for example. Yeah, exactly, than it is to right. do it in a two thousand dollar a day studio. Yeah, um, and you know, and I, I've I've said this before, so Mark, forgive me if I repeat myself, but That's okay. I was I was a, a nobody wannabe producer. And I was not the guy that Rat wanted at all. I mean, it was, I'm sure that they were quite disappointed that they were pushed into that position where Doug said, Bo's doing the record or you're not on Atlantic. <laughs> and and then at that point, Marshall said, Bo's doing the record. And, but, uh, you know, I really had to earn my stripes with these guys, like on a daily basis, because Rightfully so, they had absolutely zero confidence in me. They had zero trust in me. They didn't really like me because I was, you know, thrust upon them and forced upon them. And, you know, everybody kind of, you know, we were all trying to make nice as best we could. Um, but if I came up with a, with a controversial 
arrangement change or something along those lines. I mean, <laughs> they were they were very very quick to let me know that my opinion wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. Right. So I had to do a fair amount of lobbying and a fair amount of groveling and a fair amount of come on, let's just try it. You know, that was my whole thing was like, okay, if it sucks, it sucks and we won't do it. But let's try. Let's at least see if we can make it not suck. And so eventually we got around to it. And the, the biggest one was round and round. Right. And I heard the I heard the story. Yeah. This, yeah. This, do you want me to repeat? It. Yes, no, yeah, please yeah. tell it. Yeah, please oh, okay. do it. I haven't so, heard it. <laughs> Round and round, they, it was grooving along, and then all da 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 blah, round and round. And it had this massive rest in the middle of the song, which I called Groovus Interruptus, mm -hmm. because it just, like, killed the energy going into the chorus. Normally, you know, you want your energy flow going up to the chorus, not flat. And, and, I, and I tried... A guitar part, a big drum fill, I mean, you know, everything. Because I wanted to get rid of that gap, and those guys liked it. And so every single thing I came up with, nope, we're not doing it. Nope, that sucks. Nope, you're an idiot. Nope, we're not doing it. So I got in the habit of going into the studio about two or three hours earlier than band call, which was 10 o'clock. And I would go in and I would think about what I was going to do that day. And I would review what I did the day before to see if I let some something go that I needed to go back and fix. And then I would experiment with all the horrible sounding things that we've already talked about. You know, it's like it, it really sounds bad until it doesn't. <laughs> and there's not much right. there's not much um, gray area in between. And so I kept thinking about what can I do to cover that hole? And then I just, I got, just got this crazy idea to flip the tape over and, and record the echo backwards because it gave me the rhythm. That's all I wanted. I just wanted some rhythm to fill up that hole. And I don't even remember what the genesis of the idea was. I just did it. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, trying to play it for the band, the first, their first knee-jerk reaction was always, no way, dude, no way, we're not doing that. And then eventually it kind of wore on them a little bit. And it was like, okay. And um, I accidentally had leaked a rough to Doug of that, which, which I had sworn I would never do, but I accidentally did that time. And I got a really positive response from him. And so I, I, I really pressed it as hard as I could. And the band eventually kind of, I think I just kind of got used to it and let it go. And I, I, I was shocked that that was the first single. Now that yeah, I tell you how the single. first single got picked. That's a great single though. Yeah. Tell us that. <laughs> well, the first single got picked by Doug Morris's nine-year-old son, Walt, Walter. <laughs> I swear to God. And so what had happened was Doug had, had the, uh, the album at his house 
And he, he was, you know, just playing it routinely like he always did. And then all of a sudden, one day, I mean, we still hadn't made the decision. One day he heard Walt walking through the house going, round, 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 round. That was it. Doug said, that's the single picked by his son, Walter. Thank you, Walt. <laughs> well, that, you know, that makes total sense. You know, it's like if, if a song sticks in a, a little kid's head like that and it's stuck in his brain, that's what you want. You that's know? what you want. You want it to stick in everyone's head. Well, that's what, what was the single that you wanted, Bo? Uh, oh, um, Back for More. That's a good one. Which wound up, which wound up being, uh, being a single, but you know, on the heels of round and round, I mean, we could have, we could have released, you know, goats burping and it probably would have done okay at that point. But again, you know, this was my first, I was still learning the business and I was learning the, okay, this is how it works. Okay. This is how you, uh, present the project to the label. This is how you do this. And this is how you do that. And so I was, I was very, very mindful of the process so that I would be better prepared down the road to, uh, to work within the norms and the process of how everything right. works. Well, uh, working on your psychology degree is what you're saying. <laughs> Amen on that. Because, because it's generally a psychology thing. It's, it's a, it's, Oh, this is how I kind of sneak this in and get this by this, these guys and make it, think it's their idea or <laughs> it's turning no into yes yes exactly yeah. it's an interesting uh dynamic <laughs> sure. working with artists you know it's just it's just different yeah a different totally. thing it's not it's not like the normal world <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. so so you so you're working on this uh, this great first album that was a massive massive hit mtv favorites um what so you're dealing with Robin and, and, and Warren and what were the, do you remember, recall what the, what guitar amps, what, what was going on with the guitar sound and those records? And yeah, I thought about this today and this is going to be another story. Mark already knows because that this um, is, this is like really like our, our guys, you know, are big fans of, of, uh, you know, Warren and yeah. so, you know, it's, they it's know the, big, I mean, it's I a have big a thing. And, and I feel, I mean, I mean, the first record was the first record, but even in later records, um, I feel that there was something kind of special that wasn't just a normal guitar sound. And there was something kind of special about it. And I'm very curious okay. about that. I'll give you the honest answer. Yeah. Warren. Warren's hands. It's Warren. It's just the way that he approached music, the way that he thinks about music, the way that he phrases and the way that his head works. I mean, I could have put I could have put him on anything, honestly, mm -hmm. and it would have it would have sounded great. Mm -hmm. um, on the first record, round and round, you know, the band was broke, and we were, and they didn't have great they didn't have hardly any equipment, and so we were able to cobble together one guitar rig between all Robin's junk and all of, of uh, Warren's junk, one rig that kind of worked. It didn't, mm. you know, it didn't have, it didn't buzz and the speakers all worked kind of and everything. Right. <laughs> um, 
And, and I approached it pretty, pretty simply. I think it was SM57 on the center of the cone uh, and then another SM57 slightly off axis. Mm -hmm. I believe, I want to say it was a 50 watt Marshall with 25 watt Celestian speakers. Mm -hmm. And both guitar players had to use that rig, which really frustrated both of them because, you know, their concept was Warren wanted to be the guitar player on the right, noticeably so. And Robin wanted to be the guitar player on the left, noticeably so. And their perception was, was that um, discretion was kind of muted because everybody's playing on the same rig. Mm -hmm. But that's just the way that that record was. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't, I don't remember uh, doing a lot of, of changes. In other words, once we got one really good chunky uh, sound, as far as the, uh, the actual amp is concerned, the settings on the amp, I think I tried to keep it pretty set. Mm -hmm. And then I remember, and I, I can't remember what the chain was, but Warren introduced a Fender Princeton. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's a little amp about this big. And we either used it as a preamp for Warren's solos, or we actually used it as the solo amp, period. Because Are you we sure it was a Super Champ? Super Champ. Yeah, that yes. was it. It was the Super Champ. Yeah, Super I had Champ. heard about this before, yeah. And, so, and I don't remember if we used it as the preamp or if we actually just used it as the right. solo amp because it, 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 but it was, it was really great. And again, I have to give, I have to give Warren the credit because I mean, if you could take a super champ and, and make it sound like he did, then that's, that's incredible. Yeah. 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 Were there, do you know if there were any mods to the uh, modifications of the Marshall? Was it modded by Lee Jackson or? That's uh, very, po that's very, very possible. But, my initial instinct is no, simply because I didn't have any money to do anything like that. Yeah, I think I think they were stock amps. They crank, got to crank them up and get the sound. You know, back then. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Warren still likes that. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, uh, like, turn it on ten. But was there anything boosting it at all? Like, well, know? just just the preamp on the Marshall itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here is kind of my approach. When you turn, when you crank the preamp, you know you get like that real zoom kind of uh, almost artificial sustain. Mm -hmm. And what I preferred to do was to get the preamp turned back, turned down as low as I could possibly get it, so that I got more performance out of the guys rather than I wanted that front end transient. I wanted that back yeah. as opposed to <laughs> lower gain. Right. Well, lower preamp gain. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't mind it being cranked on the back end, but yeah. it was the front end that was kind of that was making it a little hairier and a little blurrier. And I wanted it. I wanted them to have to work at it just a little bit harder, so that I could get the transient and the rhythm because those both those guys were excellent rhythm guitar players, and I wanted to get that performance. And I didn't want it all blurred out with too much preamp. I don't know if that's getting right. too in the weeds for you guys, but 
Oh no. Oh, no, 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 nothing's too in the weeds. No. <laughs> so we had a, we had a couple questions. Um, is it possible that uh, from Purposeful Porpoise was it an Arredondo modded Super Champ? Possible? No, no, it's just a stock Super Champ. Super Champ, uh, those old Super Champs were great. I mean, they're gainy and they have sustain and uh, they have a thing about them. It's really great amps. I kind of want one, but I haven't. They gotten really expensive. Mm. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think they're up to about fifteen hundred dollars for one now. What year? Uh, it, it was originally designed by Paul Rivera, and it was uh, and it uses like a very interesting uh, kind of an oddball tube that doesn't you can't get it anymore. So okay. um, in the preamp section, and and uh, you know, it's like a cascaded gain stage kind of Paul early Paul Rivera kind of thing that was. Uh, just super cool. Had a cool mid boost on it, which was really good, probably for the lead kind of stuff. Um, it's, I, I remember it being a really cool amp. Hmm. Really, good. yeah, it, it it was. But the, and that's that's the only time that we used it. I think was on was on uh, seller. Interesting. So, uh, Michael Nielsen, thanks for the question. Uh, make sure everybody checks out his channel, Big Harry Guitars. Uh, so was the two SM57s your go-to mic setup for later rap records, Warrant and Winger as well, or did you change it up? I would ha I would have to say, generally speaking, yes. That was kind of my go-to. And then over the years, the each record was kind of its own experiment. So... I would I was constantly trying to push my envelope to make me dig in a little harder to okay can I make this better rather than just you know resting on okay well two SN57s worked on seller so I'm never going to change All right um, and you know I'm sure uh, a U87 slipped in there someplace and you know cuz I was always changing stuff around but generally speaking, the 57 was a great, great universal tool. And the other thing was, you, you have to remember, I'm in different countries and stuff like that. And trying to get consistency about their mic selection was an, a, another piece of it. Uh, it. You know, if they had all of this weird stuff that I didn't, have any experience with then you know what i'd ask the second i'd say you got a couple of 57s yes every studio in the world had 57s yes. right and so from a consistency point of view that was kind of my uh my backup plan gotcha gotcha um so earlier on you mentioned that you were friends with kip winger and his brothers yeah and they were playing with you early on. And so is that how ultimately you ended up producing their album or because you knew them or I'm just curious, how yeah. did you end up knowing them? Well, uh, they had their band called wingers and they lived in Denver. And I want to say the guy that was managing them came to the studio that I was working at. And, and I, and I heard, these demos and this guy said um we need a producer and i thought i thought the demos were good and so i, I said i'll do it and 
and we became absolute best friends. Now, Kip was 16 years old at that time. And, and his two brothers. Um, and so we went in and we, and we recorded. And then after we did this stuff in, in Denver, that's when I would, was working at that studio in Dallas and we got Stevie to come in and sing with Kip and the guys and all that stuff. So yeah, I've known, I've known, I've known them for a very, very, very long time. Uh, haven't seen, um, much of Kip in the last 25 years. Uh, but I've been in touch with his two brothers. One, one passed away, um, about a year ago, Nate. And, uh, and I used Nate and Paul as background singers because they were just excellent on almost every record that I did. Hmm. Um, I mean, even like rat records and warrant. And didn't, didn't use them on, on rat, but I used them on, Oh God. Uh, Alice. Hmm. Um, anytime, anytime I needed to put together some like good vocals and, and guys that were quick studies and, and understood the way that I worked, uh, they got the call. I mean, they did Fiona. They did, they did. I can't even think. That's great. Yeah. Um, so we got a couple super chat questions. I'm going to jump to Okay. Uh, Anthony DiCarlo. Thanks so much for the super chat. Bo, can you talk about your transition from mixing analog to digital? Do you mix in a hybrid type setup? And your must-have favorite types of outboard gear. See, we do get geeky here. Okay. So <laughs> is this is this today or is this back in the day? Uh, well, your transition. About, uh, transition from mixing from analog to digital. So probably, you know, and then what do you do? Okay. So here's, here's the transition. I started out only analog, as everybody did. Two-inch tape, 24 tracks. Then over the course of time... Uh, Sony introduced their digital tape recorder, 3348. Mm -hmm. So it was, I think it was half inch tape, but digital. And I don't know exactly how they got the digits on the tape or anything like that technically. Um, so what I did transitionally was I would cut all the basic tracks on analog, 24 tracks. And then the very next thing that I would do would be I would transfer my keeper take into the Sony. <clears throat> A, because it won't, it wouldn't degrade my analog tape so I could save the quality for mixing. And B, because I inherited 24 additional tracks as well as a stereo sampling track, which proved to be immeasurably uh, important. Then I would finish the record on digital. So I'd run the, the basic track on analog, take those, put them away, never to be seen again until I'm ready to mix. So all the lifting, all the running back and forth, the 35,000 passes of the tape on the heads was all done on digital. Yeah. Then, depending on the comping and all that kind of stuff, then I would sync up both those two machines for mixing. So I was mixing analog and digital at the same time. If that answers the question. 
Well, then at some point, I'm I'm sure you transitioned though from there to Pro Tools or something, and then from there to what you're currently doing now, right? So, so yeah, um, I went I went to Pro Tools kicking and screaming. Now, you have to remember, Pro Tools has been around for a very long time, mm-hmm. and in the early iterations of Pro Tools, the A to D converters sound like a, uh, a Chinese car wreck. Right. They were very brittle. They, they really didn't sound very good. And so hence my reluctance to even to go that route. But I went ahead and did it. I had my own Pro Tools rig zillions of years ago. And with each upgrade that Pro Tools did, the... Um, the converters got better and better and the plugins got better and better. And then I forget which version it was that they made like a real quantum leap in the quality of the, of the sound that was getting reproduced. And at that point I went, okay, I'm done. And, and I remember a lot of people, my peers, would go, eh, we don't like it, blah, 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 blah. I really miss analog and stuff like that. And so I started thinking to myself, well, listen, I haven't worked on an analog machine in 10 years. I don't even remember what it sounded like. I don't. <laughs> and so yeah. how does everybody else remember what it sounded like? Yeah, yeah. And um, and so, you know, I just, I embraced the Pro Tools concept Primarily because the way that that I sort of approach music and mixing is we were limited in the analog universe by by a myriad of physical limitations, as you will. ...of the tape, I mean, just a bazillion reasons. And in Pro Tools, once I finally opened my head up to it, I went, okay... The only limitation within Pro Tools is my own imagination. If I can think of it, if I can fuzzy it around in my head someplace, Pro Tool, they will be able to render it somehow. Just because you don't have all the physical limitations and you know you can turn shit upside down, backwards, distort it, not distort it, whatever you want to do. A lot of the things that 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 I always wanted to do with within the analog universe, but I just couldn't there. It was just impossible to do. Mm-hmm. So about, I would say in 2005, that was when I started, I started doing just like nothing but mixing. I just went, okay, I'm not going back in the studio. I'm, I'm done. There's no money in it anyway. And no one can afford me, so I'm just going to, you know, sit in my underwear and uh, mix records. So that's kind of how that happened, 2005. And so, what does your current setup look like? What What are you? What are you? How are you using? How are you working now? Well, uh, I'm on Pro Tools 12, and I'm at the point now where I have been perfecting my work template, if you will, for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And 
So I don't uh, upgrade my Pro Tools anymore. I don't upgrade the operating system on my rig. So that, that rig is frozen. I'm not going to, because trying to get it all to work and get all the plugins yeah. to talk to each other and to get everything to work is such an amazing pain in the ass. So now I don't care if they're, if they're on Pro Tools 39. I'm never changing anything. Once I got it stable and I got it where it'll work, I'm not changing anything. And the template that I'm using is, is so functional that when I import a mix uh, without tooting my own horn, I'm 80% there without touching anything. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just because of, of 10,000 hours of working with Pro Tools and trying all these experiments and trying to figure out, okay, how do I control this and how do I, uh, how do I maintain, you know, discretion and integrity by the time it gets to the two bus at the very end that now I'm going, okay, it's pretty good. You know, I've got it manageable. And then of course, you know, I, I can go in and do whatever little tweaks I need to do and whatever the artist would like for me to do, turn the vocal up or whatever. Easy. But, so it's all in the box then everything? No. Well, that's a yes and no. So okay. I, I mix in the box with like that uh, Q clone plugin mm-hmm. I told you about, mm-hmm. which is which is a, a, a stamp of my outboard gear. And then when I go to the two bus, I come out of the two bus, and then I go into my analog universe, which is a stereo Avalon EQ and a stereo Avalon compressor. And that warms it up, it analogs it up a little bit, and then I come right back in and print it back into Pro Tools. Right. That's a great way to do things. Well, it really, it makes a difference. You know, I, it, it's subtle, but yeah. it does make a difference. So that's yeah. kind of how I did that's great. Yeah, absolutely. A lot, a lot of people are doing it that way. It's mostly in the box, and then they print on their two bus. They put uh, some analog pieces of gear, whatever their favorites are, maybe two Poltex and uh, SSL bus compressor or something or what, whatever, and then print back in and bam. Yeah. There it you have sense. it. Yeah. Um, super chat from Bill Meinhardt Jr. Another great tone talk, gentlemen. Thank you for your donation. We appreciate it. Uh, Patrick Miller's got a question about a Lexicon PCM 42. So I don't know if you can answer this, uh, Bo, or, or if this is for Dave. The delay time on my on the display of my Lexicon PCM 42 is increasing a few milliseconds once I set it. Is it worth sending somewhere to be repaired? Um, are have- your uh, the modulation section all the way down? Make sure that. It's happening. Otherwise, you'll actually see the delay times drift. But they kind of do that a little bit. <laughs> At least that's my recollection of those. They they do. But you know, if it's drifting one millisecond, eh, no you're not going to even notice. The, yeah, the, I, the, I SRV six hundred milliseconds or six hundred and one milliseconds. It's six hundred milliseconds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, six hundred and three. Even <laughs> it's not. You're not. It, you won't hear it. And they they do tend to do that. I remember having them. They they would tend to do that a little. Interesting. I I, I can't offer any suggestion one way or another because I just don't remember. 
Um, let's see. I want to make sure I didn't pass anybody. Uh, oh, okay. We've got Rummy who says, Bo, regarding the sound on Lay It Down, how and why did you decide on a delay for Warren's riff? How did you organize the backing vocals? Okay. Uh, we get people that are going to ask some questions that you're not going to go, I'm not. Let me think about this for a second. <laughs> <clears throat> well, um, I may have just been in my uh, in my echo phase when 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 I when I did that, but it seemed it when I added it, it just seemed to 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 work. And then for the background vocals, um, the way that that we did it with Rat was I wrote most of the background arrangements and because I, I can, I, I write music. And so I had to write it down because I couldn't remember. And so on the backgrounds for, for Rat, it was always uh, Juan and me. And then sometimes Robin, occasionally Steven would jump in on backgrounds, but most of the time it was Juan and I. And the concept was we would sing the exact same part. So I, I'd write a three-part harmony, let's just say for laughs. And then Juan and I would, would uh, and I had a little, a little silly Casio, like this big, little miniature keyboard. It was a toy for children, but it had... It had Into the studio, say, okay, Juan, here's here's our part, and I'd go whatever it was, and and I had my my notation up there, so Juan could he could follow along and see where the the part was going, and so the two of us would do the same part on the left, and then we double it on the right, and then we do part number two, and then part number three. The theory behind it is that it wouldn't sound like Juan, and it wouldn't sound like me. It would sound like Bowan, and and that was kind of what we we were going for. And then when when we would bring Robin in, you know, it would be again, it would just be kind of a stew of vocals, and that's that's kind of how we did it. I, did I answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was curious about this as well. Were there any, do you remember using an ADA MP1 on any of the records when it came out in the late eighties? I don't know what that is. I, ah, so the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a preamble. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I did. Okay. Um, do you remember what Reb was using? Um, Reb? The, yeah. Reb beach. Marshall. Just, uh, Regular Marshall, you know, eight hundred Marshall. Do you happen to know? Yeah, I mean, we had, there there were eight hundred Marshalls spattered, you know, throughout those uh, those sessions. Um, but normally, I would try to keep um, either fifty or hundred watts. But my main thing was the 25-watt Celestian speakers, just because I thought they were a little warmer, and I thought that they distorted a little less edgy. That's the only thing I can think of. And again, that's probably very subjective just on my part. 
Oh, that's pretty accurate. Um, but that's, I, I, generally speaking, that's, that's what we were using. And I tended to like um, 50 watt heads, but I know that we use a lot of 800s and we used a lot of 100 watt heads. And I don't even remember what turned me on to a 50 watt head. Hmm. But, you know, sometimes the guys would like that. Sometimes they, they'd go, no, 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 I want my 100 or whatever. Uh, Michael Nielsen, thanks for the super chat. Uh, I read that Red Beach was your go-to studio guitarist before he was in Winger. How did you guys meet, and do you prefer to record guitars dry with effects? Okay. Um, I was doing uh, the first Fiona record that I did with her, and her bass player brought in Red. And I forget what it, we just needed a solo done or something like this. And he said, listen, I got a guy that, that that's really, really good. So let's give him a shot. And Red came in and I will never forget this because guitar players, especially if, if they're lead guitar players, when they're warming up, if they warm up doing solos or if they warm up playing rhythm mm -hmm. is a huge tell to me. And Reb and like and Warren and uh, they would come in and they would play rhythm. And and that's when I knew right then. He would he'd warm up and he'd play rhythm and it would be really crisp and really clean and really just have great feel and great phrasing. And so that's how he warmed up. And then when he started actually playing and soloing, I was just sitting there with my mouth on the floor, just going, where did you come from, man? And so, yes, to answer your question, uh, prior to, to Winger, every session that I didn't have Mike Slamer on, because he had moved, but I, I would use Rev every single time I possibly could. He's incredibly fast, very funny, Super talented, as you know, and he—he he was one of those guys I didn't really have to say too much to. Mm. Right. I didn't want to overcoach him because he'd come up with better ideas than I could come up with any day, and so I wanted all that extra energy and input. So yeah, I um I just have to say that I love the tone on seventeen. I do too. I do um, too great tone um it's 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 funny because it's similar to lay it down in a way mm -hmm. um i don't know just just the way I, don't know. I, I always thought the guitar tone on that was a little bit looser meaning a little more bass content and a little like kind of a little looser looser in tone which which is totally cool because it actually made a sound for that the band kind of it was that sound it could have been in his hands you know what i mean <clears throat> well in general the guitar players would set the amps the way they wanted to set them mm -hmm. I mean, you know sometimes i'd go out and i'd fuck around with something but generally speaking you know i wanted those guys to be comfortable with their sound so if you look at it through that prism then my my control over the sound at mix and at recording was very general and very kind of minimal. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
a DB and a half at 200, uh, you know, just again, very gentle, especially on the record side, because I never wanted to box myself in. And oh, t- to the other question, it was, uh, I always recorded guitars dry, always, just because I didn't want to box myself in, because I may think I've got a genius idea on a Monday, and on Thursday, I have a piece of shit that I can't take the effect off the track. Right. So, and if, and generally speaking, if somebody came in and I was monitoring it with an echo or with a flanger or some, whatever it was, if somebody walked in and they went, wow, that blows my mind. That's the best thing I've ever heard in my entire life. I would turn around to my second and I would say, okay, run it and print it discreetly on its own track. So every time when people, and I learned this the hard way, but when people say that they like something, I grab it. And a case in point, which happened all the time, was in the, in the drums. So you've got the snare drum and you're playing and you're, you're take number three or take number four or something like that, snare head goes. Okay, we put the same head back on, we do everything, and then bat, 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 and the drummer goes, that doesn't sound right. Or I go, that doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea about, you know, capture what it is that you like so that you can always refer back to it. And so because this became so problematic with me, when we would, before we would ever start taking the song, especially in the drums, sorry to to digress with this. Oh, no problem. I I would take individual clean hits of every drum. So when we got everything, everybody's going, yeah, I like this. Okay, great. Bat, I'd record it. Boom, I'd record it. Boom, I'd record it. So I had a clean sample, if you will, of the tone that everybody liked. Yeah, so and then you can play it back and you can go, we're a million miles away or we're right on top of it. Because everybody's perception, you know, including mine, changes. No, 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 it wasn't that tinny. No, 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 it had more boom. No, 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 it was blah, 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 blah. You know, and we were all right and all wrong at the exact same time. It's just perception, and that changes. So I needed to take that out of the equation, at least for the drums, and and similarly for the guitar parts. That makes total sense. Makes total sense. Um, Gavin T., thanks for the super chat. I'm not sure if you had a question. If you did, let us know. Um, I know Michael Nielsen said thank you uh, for... uh, the info that you just provided. Oh, thanks for the question, Michael. Appreciate it. Um, let's tell the story of the rat song that had a perfect solo by Warren and then the track got erased. Oh, okay. I don't remember what song it was, but oh, Warren, Dave. which one? We lost Dave. He'll be back. Okay. Uh, Warren taught me a very valuable lesson early on in my career. And I'm sure it was on Out of the Cellar. So Warren came in, and I don't remember which song it was. Uh, Maybe Back for More. And, you know, we would just play it, and he'd kind of warm up. And, hi, Dave. Hi. I don't know what happened. Our internet dropped out here or something completely. 
Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, we would play play the song, and I'm still setting levels and stuff like that, and, and we'd play the solo, and Warren would just warm up through the solo. And so, one, two, three, go, I kind of was just sitting there just letting him get warm, and he played the perfect solo. It was perfect. And I turned around to, uh, to my second and, and I said, you have any issues with this? And he said, technically, no, it's, it, it's on the money. And I turned around to Warren and I said, we're done. I said, that is the best solo I've ever heard in my entire life. And because he did it while we were warming up, as opposed to his intention to do it, and we're on analog and I'm running out of tracks. So I had no place to put it. And Warren said, Bo, come on, man, this is bullshit. I mean, that's, a, you know, it was okay, but I can do a lot better than that. And, and I, uh, and I said, okay, never again will I do that. Um, and so we, we erased the solo. I mean, we got, you know, we got something good, I'm sure. But my remembrance was it was nothing close. And the fact that he was really loose, he, you know, and it was just him. He was just farting around. And yeah. it just all of a sudden, just this thing came out. And I was sitting there just dumbfounded. You know, the talent of guys like that has always blown my mind where they, they just like, you know, idiot savants. And they're just like genius. Mm-hmm. But that's, he taught me that lesson. And, and if I ever felt that strongly about a vocal performance or an anything performance, I was never going to let lack of real estate ever get me off course. I mean, I'd fly onto to a two track or I'd do something with it, but I was always going to figure out a way to save it from that point on. Hmm. Thank you, Warren. <laughs> <laughs> uh, freaks arise, Rich Wood. Did Bo orchestrate, arrange the harmonized anthemic ending of the guitar solo in Round and Round? It's super emotional and as memorable as the song itself with interesting harmony choices. Um, the, that's a great question. Uh, the only thing that I would have done in that, from an orchestration point of view, would have been just comp together the solo. Uh, normally... I would do everything in threes. And so I would do three solos on separate tracks. And then the morning after when my ears are clean and I've had a good night's sleep and I'm objective, I come in and I grade the solo myself. Okay. I like this bit. I like these two bars. I like this. I like this. I can make it work. I can crossfade. I can do whatever. And then I would put together the bionic solo and then I would play it for Warren. And if and Warren would say, hmm, you know, I don't like the last half, then we'd start the whole process over again. I'd keep the first half and we'd try to beat the second half. And we did that with vocals. We did that pretty much with everything. Um, I would come up with, with what I thought was the best of that day's work. And then the guys would come in and they'd say, yeah, okay, it's all, it's all right. Or, I love it or I hate it or whatever. And that was the way that that would work. So most of that was probably Warren and he would give me three great outro uh, tracks. And then I would 
crunch them together with the super solo track. It's funny because uh, Purposeful Porpoiser said, you guys are asking him questions like he recorded these albums last week. <laughs> remembering any of this is mind-blowing. <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. I've done, I, I've done a, a lot of interviews over the course of time, and people seem to be interested in similar things. And so it kind of it gets ingrained in my brain. But trust me, there are many, many, many aspects of all those records that have long gone. I'm sure. I'm sure. Especially uh, working with so many people, which le- kind of leads me into the next question. Um, all the way to today. Who I lost you. Oh, can you hear me? I, I got you back. Okay. Uh, we've got Mr. Tinker Train uh, for the super chat. All the way to today, who is the most impressive guitarist you've ever worked with and which was the hardest to work with? Tell us that story. Oh boy. Well, okay, this is going to sound very politically correct, but I have been fortunate enough to work with some absolutely mind-blowing guitar players. One of which was Key Marcello with Europe cuz he he took uh John Norum's place for that one record I did. I love working with this guy. Key Marcello is fabulous. Um and he, he was a lot of fun to work with. Um, obviously, Reb. Obviously, Mike Slamer, who was my go-to studio guy uh, for a long time. He was the guitar player in Streets with Steve Walsh from Kansas. Hmm. And he was supposed to produce that record, the second record for Atlantic. And they forced me upon him. He was very unhappy about that decision, but he and I became best friends. And so I used him on everything that I possibly could. Uh, he was the guy that, that ghosted all the warrant records that I did. Oh. And um, as far as the, and of course, Red, uh, Warren, I think Warren was probably the pickiest. I, I wouldn't say the hardest to work with, but Warren was a guy that was, I mean, he was hard on me, but he was even harder on himself. Mm. And sometimes, I mean, I remember it was, it was sometimes difficult for Warren to, to appreciate his own moment of genius. And if I, Warren, this is really good. Oh, you sure? I don't know, man. And he seemed to be, that guy, you know, where it was really hard for him to accept his own moment of genius work. Hmm. Some artists are like that, right? In yeah. Um, question. Uh, I'm curious about this as, as well. Do you have any cool stories to share about working with Gary Moore on the run for cover? Oh, well, yes. We were in, uh, this is completely non-musical. <laughs> But we were in Dublin, and and Gary introduced me and took me to the oldest pub in the UK. Dates back into the 1500s. It's so old that when you walk down the cobblestone steps to get into the door, that the door had now sunk and was like this. The whole building had, had shifted. And then my other fun 
remembrance of Gary Moore was what a great singer he was. I mean, I had no idea. And on that record, we had him and Glenn Hughes also great singers. And so when these guys were, were going for it, I was, I was like, wow, this is, this is really something. I, I wasn't expecting that at all. But he was a lot of fun. And, and he was, he was also kind of like, he was like a one take kind of guy on guitar, as I remember. Because I, I didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't spend that much, that much time in the studio because it was just great. You know, he just did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm an amazing player. Yeah. Uh, we've, got, we've got the great Pete Thorne here. Hey, Pete. Hey, Pete. Uh, hey guys, great show. Bo, any mixing or tracking tips when it comes to EQ specifics, making guitars sit in the track or poke through or how to stereoize a sound to make it a little wider, etc. Great, great, great question. Okay. So in order to make things bigger, or perceived to be bigger, sometimes you have to make something a little bit smaller to make room for it. So the way that I approach mixing for the last eon is when I when I first started, you know, everything was hard right, hard left, because that equaled big. You know, you've got hard, hard right drums, hard left drums, and that makes them big. Hard right toms, hard left toms. And then I started figuring out, I, I, I went, wait a second, When I go to see a gig, you know, the drums are here. They're not here. And so as I started changing my panoramic vision of the drums, in other words, tightening them up, I gave space out here for the guitars. So the guitars, the rhythm guitars in particular, are hard left, hard right. And they have no effects on them whatsoever because I want that attack. And by closing certain things up just a little bit, these guys sit out here alone for the most part, and they have the room to breathe and they have the room to, to do their job. So if, they're, if the rhythm guitar part is very rhythmic, um, this works fantastically well. It's hard to get used to, you know, because most people perceive big as hard left, hard right. But if you can somehow manage to like gather up some of the other information and tighten it just a little teeny bit and leave a hole for the guitars from an EQ perspective, um, I use my Pultec um, clone. Most of the guitars is going to be, now, I don't know if, if you know the Poltec EQP1A, but it's a very Neanderthalic piece of equipment. It's like got two knobs on it. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the frequency uh, selections is, is, is a hard click button. So it's like 200, 400, 1,000, whatever. So you don't have any of the gray area in between. What I would do typically would be um, plus one, plus two at 10K. I do plus one, plus two down in 200, 250. And then I'd carve out a little teeny 
little teeny sliver. And I'm talking like a very narrow bandwidth in the 1000 to 2K area. Pardon me, pardon me, 1000 to 1200 area, just a little teeny imperceptible notch. And then I would make slight adjustments between the left and the right guitar player. So if on the left, it was plus two at 10. On the right, it would be plus one and a half at 10. So I could get just a little, a little nuance. And bone dry in your face. And that's kind of how I do it. Makes sense. Right. Yeah, that's great. By the way, um, how are you doing on time, Bo? Can we, you good for like another 10 minutes? Oh, sure. I'm good. Okay, cool. Um, okay, I will bring up something. Kicks, Kicks Records. Yeah. Great sounding records. Uh, great band. Um, really cool, distinctly different guitar parts on left and right kind of thing going on. You know, a lot of interplay between the guitars. Anything to talk about on those? Stand by. <laughs> cool. Yeah, the kick, uh, kicks records were always like this really cool. Um, really, the two guitar players had two distinct parts, you know, it was amazing. Okay. Are you familiar with this? Uh, what am I looking at? Kicks, Fuse, what? Kicks Fuse 30. Okay. No. So this is Blow My Fuse remixed last year. Oh, and and so I got the originals from Atlantic, and we redid this one. And it, this one came out so good that we did Midnight Dynamite this year. Oh. So. Right. Anyway. So check those out because this was really spectacular. I never thought. 30 years later that I would ever be able to hear my own work. And so they got the tapes and they rendered them digitally in a pro tools format and sent them to me. And so now I'm taking, I'm taking this walk down memory lane and I got all copies of the original track sheets, all the notes, all the lyrics, all the stupid shit that I wrote about whatever I was doing at the time. And so I really had a chance to go back into my history in a real way and, mm -hmm. and listen to what I thought was cool back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it was such, and it was a real emotional thing for me because some of the stuff that I did, I was going like, wow, that is really great. And then, Two seconds later, I'd push up another fader, and it was just like unlistenable bad. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I wound up, when I finished um, uh, Blow My Fuse, I called Steve, and I said, listen, man, I owe you an apology. <laughs> and he said, what for? And I said, because I really fucked up that record, you know, when we did it the first time. I really, really screwed it up. Oh, pardon me, I mean, I'm at uh, Midnight Dynamite. And it was just, it was just great. I enjoyed every minute of it. So we remixed both those albums from uh, top to bottom. It's great fun. Oh, I I'm, I'm in touch with those guys all the time. And so I'm probably more in touch with them than I am any of the other groups I've ever worked with. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I mean, they were, but, but what I said, it's like, you know, they were distinctly the distinct 
different guitar parts are so cool because there's there's so much interplay between the two guitar players, uh, you know, and it, it, I mean, it's it's very similar to how, you know, Malcolm Young and and Angus Young would, you know, kind of interplay the parts and stuff. And, and um, yeah, I always thought those were great records. Oh, I love those guys. I've seen them live. I mean, they're like the only band that I will go to to see live. Them and ACDC, and that's probably I've seen them live in recent years. Yeah, in recent years, I've seen them live, and they were they're amazing live. They're amazing. Steve brings it one hundred percent every single time. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely. Looks like I'm gonna have to get into kicks now. Oh man, if you if you've never seen them live, you, you get get it while you can if you can uh, when it when stuff comes back or something i assume they'll be touring or something but uh yeah uh, they're just a great live band killer awesome um from rummy super chat thank you uh bo what was it about mike slammer's playing that you found magical sorry for the word but i think it's amazing on the warrant records well again he's he is just one of those guys that I just stayed completely out of the way. Here, Mike, play to this. And then I just go get coffee and shut up and listen to him play. And, you know, he's, he went on to do a lot of production work. And as I mentioned, he was supposed to produce the streets record that I did. So he, he got it. He understood exactly what... I liked and what I expected because we did the streets record together and then I just let him go. You you can't, you really can't coach people like that. Or if you do, you're going to, you know, you're going to overcoach them and you're going to come, come out with something that's not as good perhaps as if you just introduced him to the song and let him go. Right. That's cool. And, and again, it, it was just, it was just Mike. He was, he's so talented that, you don't have to coach him. You don't have to say anything. Just play this song, please. <laughs> and he does it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, hired Goonage. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good uh, name. I like that one. Uh, hello, Bo. Jumped in late here, but wanted to know more about you actually playing on some of the Rat albums without the Rat guys knowing about it. Did that happen? Yeah. Okay, so it's it's not nearly as juicy as it's as it's been made out to be. Um, the the truth of the matter is is like the band comes at ten, I go to work at seven, and so as I'm reviewing stuff from the day before, if if there was like, um, I mean, the most egregious one was there was like somebody banged an A chord. And it kind of, you know, it just kind of banged out. And so I was, it it was unacceptable in the condition that it was, but I'm sitting in the control room and I've got all the amps and I've got all the guitars and I know exactly where everything is at. So I turn the amp on, grab the guitar, boom, play an A chord, drop it in, done. But there, there's like some kind of misnomer that, that I was redoing Warren's solos. No. Never, never happened. Um, I would comp them. So the solos may have come out in a different order or progression than he played them in. But 
No, I would do like minor league repair work just because it's faster for me to do it than for me to pick up the phone and tell Warren, hey, come in and play me an A chord. So that's how yeah, that happened. Sure. Right, right. Makes sense. Um, let me see. Let me go to the chat again. I know we've got more questions. Um, Lay them on me. <laughs> I'm looking. Uh, this is an interesting question. What bits of studio gear do you hope make a comeback? <laughs> that is a good question. Um, okay. I'll give you an unpopular answer probably. I think that the digital universe that we get to work with today is better than the analog universe. Now, before everybody goes crazy, um, this is very, very subjective and it's, and it's also practical. Um, working within the digital universe is faster, easier, more productive. And just think about it. If you, if you just get rid of the patch bay, I mean, how many problems has there been with like a bad patch or a bad patch bay cable, you know, introducing hum and noise and all that other kind of stuff. So every time you have, um, you're adding elements into the chain, you know, you run the risk of adding some noise or some, or some love that you don't want in there. So I guess I would have to say, I don't think that there's really, that there's really anything for me. That's cool. Uh, Gear boy, what record did Bo produce that wasn't as big a hit as he thought it would be? Oh, where do you want to start? <laughs> um, there was a band that I did called Black Bambi. They were signed to Atlantic, and I absolutely loved that band. I thought it was going to be a giant smash hit. And as sometimes happens, the manager of that band got in a pissing match with some people higher ups at the label. And all of a sudden, the the shine was off that apple. Another one, which I signed at Interscope, was um, Unruly Child. That that was a record that I was absolutely convinced was going to become the next Foreigner. And I couldn't have been more wrong, but that was a huge disappointment to me. The uh, unruly child record. Hmm. I'm gonna check it out. Because it was on my own label at that point. <laughs> I was like, "What can I do?" <laughs> it happens. Uh, we've got a super chat from Vincent. What's up, Vinny? Uh, hi, friends. Bo, any recommendations for recording solo at home, specifically how to record vocals and guitars, acoustic guitars, record both together if separate, how which is first? Many thanks. Okay. Hi, Vincent. Great question. Um, 
Well, I would I, I would probably approach it similarly to the way that I I approach you know regular recording would be your basic tracks first. So if you're recording to whatever your rhythm source is, drummer or whatever, or if if it's just an acoustic guitar, that would come first. Vocals would come last, and. Uh, and if you had a, a rhythm source, drum machine, whatever, I mean, I would put that down first so that I could, uh, you know, have something to groove with when I'm uh, doing the guitar parts. Um, make sure that if you're recording in your underwear that your grandma doesn't come down and see you. <laughs> and, um, and other than that, that's about it. Yep. Okay. Uh yeah, definitely don't want to get caught in your underwear with your grandma. You don't. No. Uh, Deja Blue, I thought this would be a good question to promote the work that you do. Um, Bo, if I ever finish my midlife crisis album, how do I get you to mix it? LOL. How would somebody uh, hire you or reach out to you? Oh, um, if you if you go to the website, uh, Bo Hill Productions, um, there's a contact page. And it'll it'll come just to me. And then if you send it and say, hey, I've got five songs I want you to mix, blah, 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 give me your telephone number and or email or whatever, and I'll get back in touch with you. And that's kind of how we do it. Fantastic. Good luck, J Deja Blue. Uh, yeah, good luck. Uh, hired Goonage, another one. Uh, thank you. Acoustic intro for Uncle Tom's Cabin. Amazing piece, apparently performed by Janie Lane's brother. Did that ever go on? To, uh, did that guy ever go on to do anything else guitar-wise? <clears throat> okay, I'll tell you a little story about that. Um, it, yes, it was Janie's brother. Um, and this is another one of those warm-up deals. He was supposed to play to Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I had no idea what he was going to do. He's just going to strum along and play Uncle Tom's Cabin. And, you know, it was Janie's brother. So, yeah, cool. And so we set him up and had all the mics going, had all the levels going. And, you know, I said, you know, just uh, play a little bit for me so I can make sure we've got all the compressors and everything straight. And then all of a sudden that intro he started playing that just and i raced over to the, to the recorder and i hit record i didn't i didn't care what it was but this was the most amazing one time performance and it, again it was just him warming up you know he didn't he didn't know we were recording no pressure no nothing it was just him out there jamming having fun and i and i was just so blown away that we recorded it and then I figured out a way to kind of make it work going into uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. But I don't know if he's gone on to do anything beyond that or not. But that hmm. was just a magic moment for me. Super cool. Lou Sequoia, thanks for the super chat. Hey, Bo, uh, which artist had the best amp sound wise and who had the worst? Uh, if you can recall. <clears throat> yeah. The amp sound that I had the most tr trouble working with 
was probably bad brains. And the best would be, I mean, you can, you can pick Reb, Warren, mm-hmm. Key Marcello, Mike Slamer. I mean, and again, did Atomic I, Playboys, right? Sorry. You also did the Atomic Playboys, right? Oh, I, did, oh, I completely forgot about Steve, Steve Stevens. Steve Stevens, genius, genius guitar player. Yeah. Uh, great sound. Great. Yeah, he was. I'm. I. I feel bad that I hadn't said anything about him. I just didn't even think about it. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that one credit, and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> Steve's a client yeah. of mine, and, and a Friedman artist and stuff. So. Oh, he is. Yeah, yeah, he uses. Yeah, he's a signature amp with our company and stuff. So. Well, the next time you talk to him, we please be sure and tell him that I said I hope he's doing well, and I think he's a genius. <laughs> I will. I'll do that. That's all Thank I mean. you. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe I'll have him reach out to you. Say hi. Sure. Love to, I'd love to hear from you. That's great. Um, I know that there was a question. Uh, let me, all right. Let me go back to first. Joe, thanks for the super chat. Um, he didn't have a question. Harmona Castor. Dave, can you boost frequencies with passive EQ or must you use a powered gain stage? Boost frequencies? No, passive is cut frequencies. So you can't really boost with a passive deal. Not no no. It's all it's all cut. Okay. Uh Mark, huge thanks for helping track down Dave. Huge thanks to Dave on the Jet City mod amp. It screams awesome tone. Thanks, Bo, for all the great records. As always, the show continues to rock. Thanks, Jamie. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Jamie. Um, Bo, did you ever work with Jakey Lee? Oh, no. No. Okay. Uh-uh. Um, I just want to make sure we get to all the questions. Um, here's an interesting one also uh, from Ken952Guitar. Process for recording drums back in the day, mics, EQ, compression, subgroups, effects, how many tracks? Great question. Um, well, this evolved over time and where I wound up was, I may have been creating more problems for myself than I was solving, but at the end of the day, I wanted to have every single, every single component of the drum kit mic'd individually. So that would mean, you know, four cymbal mics, hi-hat, as well as as all the drums. Um, My logic was that I wanted to be able to pinpoint the placement of each element within the stereo field, as opposed to just a stereo overhead, so you just had this kind of wash. If if somebody was playing the bell uh, on the ride cymbal and it was here, I wanted to be able to place it right there. Now, that was the good part. The bad part was that with all these open mics, you know, uh, getting everything phase coherent and and just not not getting myself kind of just washed out with all of the the disagreeing phase that happens during that became a bit of a challenge. So. But anyway, that's where I wound up. 
I, I tried like general, you know, two mics overhead. Didn't like it because I couldn't maneuver it. Um, and then if I did all those drums, so that would be, I don't know, 12, 14 tracks of drums, which was not reasonable or feasible back in those days. And then I would do those and then I would do just sub mixes down to the, uh, to the digital being able to accomplish basically the same thing. So I could pinpoint stuff within my submix and that's where it would live forever. And then I'd have my 14 or 15 tracks of drums stowed on the analog. So if I completely fucked up my perception at that day, I could always back up and put up the analog reel, fix my mistake and move forward. That's great. Um, I was interested in this question, guitarist Rob Johnson. Uh, Bo, can you share a few memories you have of the late, great Robin Crosby? Was he much different working with compared to Warren? Oh, boy. Um, well, I was the closest to Robin uh, of all the guys in the band. And when I became involved with them, he was sort of the de facto leader of the band, although that would be highly debatable amongst the other members of the band. <laughs> um, but they, um, uh, he was, he was always just kind of behind the scenes and, uh, and he helped me tremendously with lobbying certain positions in the band. Because if I said it, then it was me saying it. But if Robin said it, then that was something completely different. And that was to be considered differently, if, if you catch what I'm saying. Psychological and, thing again. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and Robin was, he was um, very supportive and... And he was, he was kind of, he was very reasonable with me. And, you know, he could say, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I like that or not. And I'd say, listen, and I'd try to explain myself. And, and he was not so entrenched in his position that he couldn't turn around and go, oh, okay, I never thought of it that way. All right, maybe we should give it a try. And, and then there were lots, lots of very, of, funny things that he would do. And um, we were doing vocals one day. And when, when we did vocals, I usually just worked with Steven. So I didn't want the guys in the band sitting in there making comments and stuff like that. So I scheduled everybody for maximum, um, uh, for maximum benefit for themselves. Let me put it that way. And so I was singing with Stephen, and Robin wasn't supposed to be there, but he showed up and he 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 turned around in the interlock, you know, so Stephen couldn't see him. And uh, and we were having a particularly bad day with Stephen, and he was he was really struggling with this with this one thing. And so I'm sitting there, and you know, and I'm trying to figure out, okay. I got a lemon. I got to make some lemonade. What am I going to do now? What can I change to make Stephen's performance better? And Robin 
leans and I'm and I'm listening. I'm staring straight ahead at Stephen, and then I hear this deep booming voice, and he says, "I'm glad they think I'm glad they think he's sexy because he sure can't sing." <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> oh, and Stephen, if you're if you're if you're hearing this, all done with uh, with uh, with love. But um, you know, he, and he was just that he was that guy. And then he would come in, and he came up with a couple of really weird things. He'd come in, and he'd listen. I'd be mixing or something like that, and he'd go, "Well, you know, can you make that solo a little more bobadelic?" I was like, what, what was that? <laughs> yeah, because he, he thought some of my ideas were psychedelic, so he made him bobadelic. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And when, when we did um, uh, Invasion, the guys left to go tour Japan, and I was in the studio by myself. And then coming back from Japan, everybody went to L.A. except for Robin, and he flew to New York because I was mixing it at, at Atlantic. And so, you know, he, again, he ran interference for me and uh, he, he kind of signed off and then I'd send the tape to the rest of the guys and he'd pick up the phone and say, yeah, I think he really nailed it on this one or whatever, which, which really helped smooth things over for me. Uh, not completely, but, you know, because I don't, I don't mean to imply that the other guys were, were pu- pushovers because they certainly were not. But the fact that Robin gave it his stamp of approval at least help, helped take a little of the edge off. Um, which record was it? There, there was a record where um, they were, they hired someone else to produce. Mike Stone, mm-hmm. I think. Yep. And then uh, in the end, that didn't work out, and you came back in and... Uh, probably not, not to their liking, but came back in and uh, and fixed the problem. Well, the way that that went down was Doug Morris picked up the phone and he called me and he said, "Have you heard any of this new rat stuff?" And I said, "No, absolutely not." And he said, "Well, I just got the roughs," and and his quote again, no, no disrespect. Uh, his quote was, they sound like the worst Holiday Inn band I've ever heard. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, will you please come and fix this record? You know, and I kind of had to think about that because when we finished Dancing Undercover, you know, I was, uh, it was a very difficult record to make. There was a lot of, of uh, discord uh, the band with the band and certainly the band with me. I mean, that was always there. And he, and Doug said, I just, I need you to do this for me. And Doug Morris gave me my career. And if he would have said, lay down in front of a bus, I would have done it. So I, we made the, the necessary kiss and makeup dinners and stuff like that, you know, that we had, that we kind of had to do. And, um, then we went in and made the record. Which record was that? Reach for the Sky. Right. Good record. I I, I loved it. And as what happened with um, with Invasion, uh, I heard Warren goofing around, and and I perked up and I went, 
play that again. And he played it again. And lo and behold, way cool junior was invented. Uh, now, from what I understand, that was a, app. that was a way cool junior. Soldano app on, on way cool junior. Probably was. Yeah. At that point, that record, yeah. he told me that record was sort of half and half was Marshall and Soldano. I think the Marshall broke halfway through or something. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. right. That's what he told me. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And do you have a, a writing credit on Wake Cool Jr.? Yeah, I should. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a good one. Oh, I, I absolutely I loved that that riff. I mean, as, as soon as, oh, as, yeah. as he played it, I was just... I, and uh, and that's the same thing that ha- happened uh, with Lay It Down. Uh, he was he had some little uh, rehearsal tape that he had been working on on the bus, and he he played it for me, and I just went, "That's it, that's our song." Yeah. And awesome. I, I just I just loved those moments, and I've I've certainly had my fair share when the most unexpected moment of genius just came out of the blue and that made it so fun for me. You never knew what was going to happen. Yep. Yeah. It's just the magic. Boom. Amazing musicians. Yep. Uh, Deja blue. Bo, what did you think of the detonator album with Desmond child? Did you work on that? I did not. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I thought it. I thought it was. I thought it was a, a good record. Um, the only thing was that that was post Nirvana, and so I knew that nothing was going to happen with that record. Um, you know, because we were now phasing out of hard rock and phasing into grunge. And, but no, I thought. I thought they all. I thought they did a good job. Cool. Um... I think we've gone through mo- all of the questions. Um, I'm scrolling through, and I, uh, yeah, I want to just thank you, Bo, for coming on the show. Um, oh, it's my my pleasure. I mean, it's uh, you're you're just so well known for some amazing albums, and uh, it's just you know I'm honored to have you on the show. Really, I know Dave oh, well, as well. Thank, yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure's mine. Some of the biggest albums of the era, you know, at that time, you know, and it's just a, a moment in time. And that's, you know, that's the whole thing about the show. This show is kind of trying to let the stories be told, let, you know, let the, uh, uh, cause, cause people don't know about this stuff and they don't know the stories and, and, and it's, it's kind of like preserving a piece in history, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, because it yeah. is a piece of history as for music geeks and guitar players and different things it's it's definitely a piece of history and and that's uh you know he had a great career doing amazing stuff and still going <laughs> and what what a fun time that was huh i bet wow. right <laughs> <laughs> well i guess i know a little of it but you you kind of i was a little younger in the mid 80s so you know yeah it was, uh, it was a lot of fun yeah that's great. Yeah. Well, That's if anybody awesome. wants to reach out to Bo, I think it's BH Productions, but I'll put the the uh, the link. It's Bo Hill Productions. Is it Bo Hill Productions? Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
I'll put it down there in the link below. Um, and everybody can click it and check out Bo. Also, uh, check out Sweetwater, our link below. Uh, please press subscribe and the bell so you can get our next shows that are coming up. The next show that we've got coming up is with, if my phone will work, uh, April 23rd with Billy Duffy. Awesome. Of the cult. Um, and then May 8th is Dan Gower. Mm-hmm. We're working on some other ones. So, um, hey, and Dave, listen, I wanted to say thank you for uh, arranging this earlier time for me. I appreciate it. Oh, that's 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 no problem. It's fine. It actually, worked I, out great. I made I made it work with my schedule. I just had to shuffle a couple of little things. No big awesome. Deal. So, yeah, I, pre- I appreciate everybody watching the show and Dave shifting your schedule around. Um, all right. Well, everybody have a great, fantastic weekend. Bo, thank you. Hang on while we say goodbye. Okay. We'll say goodbye offline and, uh, everybody have a great weekend. We'll see you soon. Thank you.